tonight, I'm going to try very hard to not be nerdy. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 24. If you're going through our Bible reading plan that we made available at the beginning of this year, then you know that we are at this point somewhere in the book of Exodus. Uh, By Wednesday, if you're sticking with that plan the way that it's being released on our podcast, we'll make our way to Exodus chapter 24. A lot of people, when they read the book of Exodus, they're familiar with the Sunday school narratives of the ten plagues and God delivering His people out of Egypt and everything that comes with that. But if you just look at the book of Exodus as a whole you'll find that a majority of the time in the book is not spent dealing with the deliverance from Egypt. It's actually spent identifying Israel and their establishment as a nation. Not just how they exited, but their time in the wilderness spent in the presence of God. And so if you're keeping up with that reading, I wanted to kind of touch on what's taking place in chapter 24. I wanted to got to get us ready as we're reading through this to see that there's something bigger in the works. Now, oftentimes, this is the struggle that we face whenever we read the Bible, is that we have to keep in account, yes, the immediate context, and that's what's taking place in a small form, but we also have to consider the larger context. That is, what does the whole Bible have to say about this? And that becomes rather daunting because the Bible's a fairly large book, and it spans not just one historical era, but multiple historical eras. Not just one particular audience, but several particular audiences. And so the way that we put all this together is very important, very important in understanding who God is and what He's telling us about Him. The problem that we run up against is the different views and the different ways that people approach harmonizing the Bible or putting it all in one story sometimes fall short. Um, So uh, what we have to try and do is understand how do these things come together. I believe that the way that we find the Bible telling one story as as opposed to multiple disharmonized stories all in different places, is through the narrative that God has given us in the Bible. That is, namely, in the covenants that He uses to establish His people. This becomes not just a theme, but it actually becomes the thread that is the binding for looking at what happens to Israel in the Old Testament and what's happening to the church in the New Testament. If we understand how these things are working together, then what we see is that these covenants are more than just words that God is giving us, but we also see that we cannot unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, that it's the whole Bible that represents God's Word. And this is first and foremost, where we get our idea of being a covenant relationship people. It's unique and dedicated promise that is established between people, and it's more than a contract, but it's a guiding principle to accord and to uphold the elements of fellowship. 
What's so significant about this is that it is decidedly the single most common way that God convenes himself with people that he has chosen. Through covenants, we see the first hint all the way back in the garden when God tells Adam and Eve not to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is the establishment of terms between relationship. In other words, this is the institution that defines how man is going to have a relationship with God. It's violated. It's transgressed. It's broken. And so we see a more perfect example of this in Genesis between Noah and God, when God gives terms for his relationship to man and saying that this is my covenant to you. I will never again destroy the whole earth with water. In a fuller sense, we see it established with Abraham and then reconvened with the people of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. So why do I want to look at this? It ties in, and this is what I think is marvelous, and and hopefully if I can not be nerdy, maybe I can connect these dots. It ties in to how do we worship God. If we understand the terms of our relationship with the Almighty, then we also understand how it is that we are to bring Him glory. So, that is to say, my objectives, um, or what I would like to teach to you all tonight, is that there is a cohesive element between the covenantal expressions. That is, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not just beginning and end, but that they are one book written by God to His people of all nations. Second, to emphasize the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and generosity, as we discussed this morning. And thirdly, to expose the relationship between worship and covenants. Well, let's read then all of chapter 24 and the first nine verses of chapter 25. And the Bible says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord, all the, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men and the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, God called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linens, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skills, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for anything oil, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones for the stones of the setting, for the ephod and the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So you shall make it. I have good news. We are not going to exposit this entire passage tonight. I do want to look at some overarching themes. And the hard part about this part of the there's so much imagery and symbolism in the way that God is establishing his, his temple more than I could dive into just because I don't think I'm competent enough to do that. So I want to look at those high-level areas. First, I want to point out that God's people have always been and currently are a people of the Word. We are a people of the Word. When God's people gather in church today, we've made this point several times, it is not by our own preferences that we worship God, but it is in accordance to the way that He has told us to worship Him. We do things by the book, as it were. Well, this too is the case for Israel. Notice, God has already called the people, if we were to jump back in Exodus to chapter 19, He's already called the people out of Israel. He's already given them the Ten Commandments, and the people have already affirmed the Ten Commandments in all that they do. And here we find that Moses, in verse 3, came out and told the people the words of the Lord and the rules, and all the people answered Him with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is the second time that they have verbally affirmed the word of the Lord. Moses takes it a step further, though. He doesn't stop there. Look in verse 4. Moses goes and writes down 
all the words of the Lord. He puts it in writing so that the people will have it as reference. Why are we a people of the word? Why can't we rely on an oral tradition? Or why can't we rely on even a quote-unquote inspired tradition? Why is it necessary that the church relies on the Bible to be our sole source of authority for the things that we do? Well, I think it's because the special relationship that has been formed with man and God. It's put in writing so that we have writing as a form of accountability. It's increased accountability because it's there in black and white. We cannot say that the oral tradition's been corrupted, which certainly we could if we relied on an oral tradition. We can only say, what does the book actually say? This is what we must rely on, and this is why it's important that all Christians be people of the Word, because we have the Word, because it is what we have to rely on. Verse 5 and 8, verses 5 through 8, go on to describe what happens after the words of the covenant are written. Now for the third time, see what happens. Moses gathers the people, Moses reads the written word, and the people acknowledge for the third time the covenant that has been established between them and God. And what does Moses do next? Well, this is incredible. Perhaps my favorite part of the entire narrative. Moses takes blood and sprinkles it on the people as they say, all the words of God we will obey. It says that Moses made two types of offerings whenever he wrote down the commandments of the Lord. He made a burnt offering and he made a peace offering. He made a burnt offering and a peace offering. What's the significance of this? Well, let's consider a burnt offering first of all. The concept of a burnt offering is that there is nothing left over. With the other offerings that are described in Leviticus and everything else as we read those different things, they normally have something left over that was supposed to be a contribution to provide for the Levites or the priests who were in the temple. With a burnt offering, everything is supposed to be consumed by fire on the altar dedicated to God. It is a symbol and it is a picture of everything being totally consumed and consecrated to God. There's to be nothing left. Nothing remains except what is consecrated to God. What's the deal with a peace offering? What's to establish peace. What does God do with his covenant? He says that he's a jealous God, that his people should be completely his. And by this, by the terms that he establishes, he makes peace with fallen man. The New Testament imagery should be overwhelming your minds. This is exactly what is done by Jesus Christ. In becoming the ultimate sacrifice for the church, this is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing. He is the ultimate burnt offering because he gives everything. He gives his life. He dies and is buried in a tomb so that he might be resurrected. And he does this so that peace might be established between God and man. You don't have to rely on my word to make that connection, but you can rely on the author of Hebrews, who in chapter 9, verse 18 writes, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. 
making a connection between what Jesus does and what is taking place here in Exodus, that it was by blood that these things were established, that the first covenant had the picture of a peace offering and a burnt offering from which the blood was spread on the people to cover them as a means of establishing peace between God's original people in Exodus and the people that he grafts into the promise of Abraham. The whole chapter in Hebrews chapter 9 is actually exposing this very theme that God has chosen to dwell among man. That God has chosen to dwell among man. Let me read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 through verse 26. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to have had suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is what Jesus has done in what God is teaching the people of Israel as they come out of Egypt. As he creates these people and defines them as their own, not just through a generational adoption as sons, as Abraham's descendants, but as a people who have abounded in multitude to the extent that Pharaoh considered them a threat when they were in Egypt. This is why it is necessary to reaffirm these things and to give the people of Israel an image now of the things that are in heaven. In Hebrews, the author writes that it was necessary that Jesus did not ascend into an earthly place that was an image of heaven, but that he went to the actual heaven. In Exodus chapter 24, we find a description in verse 10 of the God of Israel that the Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel go up to see, and they say that there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Well, this is an image of heaven. In fact, sapphire stone in the Bible is consistently a theme for heaven. It is blue like the sky. Well, here they are worshiping him, and this is God's giving his instructions to the people of Israel that he would ultimately dwell with him. Stick with what's going on between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the same story. It's not broken apart in different pieces, but the blood that is being sprinkled on the people represents a blood oath that they would obey the Lord. In fact, the blood... And for us in the church, we would make reference to the blood of Christ moves beyond just a blood oath that we would obey the Lord. And it says that in is it our ability to keep the words of the law are made possible by the sacrifice of the blood on the altar. Consider for a second the fallen nature of man and the people of Israel. When they said, we will uphold all of the words of our God, do you think they were insincere? 
I think that they genuinely wanted to obey all the words that God had commanded them to do. I think when Moses went to write it down, he had excitement as the people were coming to know God and that they were coming to, and they wanted and they earnestly desired to serve Him and to glorify them in what they did. And they affirmed it and they kept affirming it. But what do we know? Has anyone ever been able to uphold all of the law of God? Other than Jesus, no one has. Their ability to do this, to enter into this covenant relationship with God, depends on the blood that is spread across them. Likewise, for the Christian, we can't say that anyone on this side of eternity is perfect, that they've completely been sanctified to the point that they would resemble their glorified bodies in heaven. We cannot say that because we know that we exist in a fallen world. Does that at the same time say that we don't want or earnestly desire to glorify God in all that we do? By no means. I mourn and I weep over my sinfulness. At the same time, at the same time, It is by Christ's blood that I am able to be righteous before God. These pictures are one and the same. They represent, and by the way, in verse 10, this phrase that comes, not in verse 10, verse 8, the phrase that they use as Moses spreads the blood on the people, he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant of the Lord that has made you in accordance with all of these words is the identical phrase that we find in Matthew 26, verse 28, Mark 14, 24, Luke 22, verse 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, Hebrews 9, 20, 10, 29, 12, 24, 13, 20, and 1 Peter 1, 2, all with reference to the Lord's Supper. This is the blood of the covenant shed for you. Isn't that what we say when we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? It's by the blood that all of these things are actually upheld. I want to note, verse 11, when we find these priestly men joining together in the presence of God, we might ask, did they actually see God or did they not? Well, we know that they actually didn't see God because no one has ever seen God, but they saw a likeness of God as they ascended the mountain. Verse 11 says, And God did not lay his hand on the chiefs of men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Here we see already the imperfect state of this incomplete revelation of the covenant relationship between God and the people of Israel. God did not eat with them. Consider the Lord's Supper, the fellowship meal, the communing between God and man. When it was instituted, Jesus Christ was there in person and he ate with the disciples. And what is our promise that as a church that we, when we say in remembrance of me, this do in remembrance of me looking forward to the day that we will commune with God the same way that Jesus Christ sat with the disciples and took the first Lord's Supper. These things are being revealed to us through Scripture, not through a discombobulated text, not through a series of books that are somehow related through a small theme, but it's all one story with broad strokes that are actually telling us everything, everything that we need to know about our special relationship with God. That is, that we are a people of the written word. 
My next point will should get, move a little bit faster. But that is that we are a people of a providential presence. A providential pres- presence. Chapter 24 in the book of Exodus actually acts as a transition. The covenant is established. The people are delivered from the bondage of God's by God's providential hand. And then verse 25 begins with the image of establishing the tabernacle. We're talking about a lot of big themes, but hopefully these things are familiar to mature Christians. The Lord's Supper, the tabernacle or the sanctuary. The establishment of the tabernacle. Now, what is this significance of the tabernacle? You notice at the end of verse 24, I'm puzzled by this. It took seven days, six days for God to create everything in the world, and he rested on the seventh day. But it takes 40 days for God to tell Moses everything that he needs to know about the tabernacle. I thought about that and I went, this tabernacle must be pretty important. Well, I didn't want to be too nerdy and find out just how important it was, but I did go ahead and tally up how many chapters in the Bible have to do with the tabernacle. Over 50. 13 chapters in Exodus, 18 chapters in Leviticus, 13 chapters in Numbers, 2 chapters in Deuteronomy, and 4 chapters in Hebrews are all committed to describing the tabernacle of God. What is this tabernacle? And why does it matter so much? What is it that God's doing? How does this relate to worshiping Him? Through the tabernacle, God promises to dwell among His people. If I was going to give you guys a title for this message, I would call it Camping with God, just because that might make somebody interested in what I have to say. God says he's literally going to pitch his tent among the nation of Israel. He's going to dwell among them. He's going to abide with them. This is what makes the tabernacle so remarkable. That it would be God's dwelling place among men. But God doesn't force himself in. He's not an intruder. Look at what he says in verse 25. Speaking to the people now, or instructing Moses to speak to the people on his behalf, to pitch this tent, God is going to use the contributions, the generosity of the people of Israel. Now consider, I said that not only are we a people of the word, but we are a people of a providential presence. How is it that God's people were capable to give everything that needed to be given in order to resurrect this temple or to do these things? I mean, think about the things that he's asking for. Silver, gold, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, acacia wood. These things are valuable. The people of Israel, they're wandering in the wilderness. Oh, but remember, what did God tell the people of Israel to do before they left Egypt? To plunder them, that's right. To go to the Egyptians and ask them for their jewelry, their gold, their silver. They left a wealthy nation. They may have been wandering in the wilderness, but by God's will, they were established. They had a treasury. And did God say, hey, I did this for you. I'm the one that made you live. 
um, hey, pay up because I helped you cross the Red Sea on dry land and all of these other things. No. No. Not only are they a people of providential presence, but they are a people of willing commitment. God says to take them from them in chapter 25, verse 2, to take a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. The people who gave were willing. They gave with a happy heart. Moses made this contribution from them because God didn't need to force himself among the people. He didn't need to because the entire purpose behind this is that they would willingly enter into this relationship with him. God willingly entered into this relationship with man because he wants to dwell among them. And here's where the worship comes in. In order for him to dwell among his people, it requires that his people would willingly want to dwell in him. In fact, flip the entire picture on the head and you see what Jesus taught in John chapter 15. In Exodus chapter 24 and 25, in the, ex, in the consecration of Israel as a nation, God tells them to create the tabernacle that he could literally, the word tabernacle comes from the word in Hebrew, literally to dwell, that he could dwell with the people. And what does John 15 tell Christians to do? To abide in a willing heart. All the imagery is remarkable, as we see not just in a typographic kind of way, not just in a Christological kind of way where we're trying to make the Old Testament say something that it's not. The tabernacle that wanders with Israel now becomes the heart of the believer because through the sacrifice of Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the Holy Spirit is now able to dwell in the heart of you. Now God really is able to dwell among his people in a way that we really can rely on the blood to keep us obedient to him. If we abide in him. John 15 verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you cannot do nothing, or you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. What then do we see? What is God really establishing in a covenant people? He is establishing a dwelling place for himself on earth. What is the ultimate revelation of Christ? We say, and this is doctrinally true, the teaching of the church. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God to man. He is ultimately everything that we need to know about God encapsulated in flesh. 
And what is the name that we call him? But Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean that we call him Emmanuel? That he would dwell amongst us so that we can abide in him. Quickly, I want to point out just some of the imagery that exists and what God is establishing in the temple. I can't go into all of it in detail. Indeed, I'm not even certain of um, some of the imagery that some people have made in looking at everything that God tells them to use in the temple. But I feel fairly confident. Verse 4 says that blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. This becomes a theme in the law. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Those three colors together in that order are a picture of no other than Jesus Christ. Blue, I've already told you, is heaven. It represents his divinity. It represents his godness. Purple represents his sovereignty. It is the color of kings. Scarlet represents sacrifice, and that is that it would become necessary ultimately for the great high priest, because who wears the ephod? The high priest, right? For the high priest, the great high priest, the one who is divine and royal to become the sacrifice. All of these things are tied up in one narrative. God sets the measure by which all worship is to be measured. When we look at what is taking place as God describes the sanctuary for the people or how they're to build it and the way the acacia word should work out, we could look and certainly find much imagery in all of this. But I would point out verse 9 in Exodus 25, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God is the one that tells us how to worship. God is the one that tells us how he is to be glorified. God is ultimately the one who tells us how we are to honor him. God sets the measure by which all worship is to be measured. I said at the beginning of this that I would like to set out to demonstrate a cohesive element between the covenantal expressions in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hopefully now you see the establishment of the covenant is through blood, both in the first picture given to Israel and in the last picture revealed in Christ. That you see that the establishment of God's dwelling, the fulfillment of Emmanuel. That you see abiding with God is the fulfillment of Him dwelling with his people. I said that I would like to emphasize the relationship between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the New Testament generosity. Even in the national sense, the tithe or the worship that was given by Israel was not a tax exerted from the people, but it was a willing offering that they had to give by the burden of their own heart. Likewise, we cannot force upon anyone any more than someone can decide to be saved on their own. And I'll remind you, since we looked at John 15, verse 16 says that you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Likewise, we cannot force authentic worship upon anyone. And I said that I would also like to expose the relationship between worship and the covenants. 
I pray that you would see now that which brings glory is what God commands us. It is the terms by which he establishes us in a relationship with him. Jesus said in John 15, verse 9, By this the Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If we're going to do that, we have to know what the terms of bearing fruit are. That's defined by a progressively revealed covenant. I did not mean um, to be so preachy. Anyone have any questions? Concluding thoughts or anything that needs to claim our attention before we dismiss? If not, I'll pray and dismiss us. Our Father in heaven, we come to you, your people, honored and humbled to call ourselves that. Lord, I pray that in all that we do, we would be aware of who you are. God, I pray that you would give us a right understanding of what it means to call you Almighty, to say that you are the Alpha and the Omega, to call you Father. God, I pray that you would show us who you are, that we might know you better. God, that as a result of knowing you better, that we would honor you in a way that we are privileged to do. Lord, I thank you for these church members, for the gathering of the church. God, I know that there are many needs among us. And God, I know that those needs exist as a consequence of living in a fallen world. But I must admit to God that those needs come as a consequence of being a fallen man. So, Lord, I ask you to forgive us of our failures, to help us to forgive those who transgress against us. God, I pray that you would give us and restore us the relationship that we do not deserve, but the relationship that we are promised because of your love. Help us to abide in that love, that we might understand it, that we might be able to serve you. God, I pray that you would not only forgive us, but that you would give us what we do not deserve in blessing us with the things that we need. God, help us to be at peace that you give us exactly that which we do need and that if you have not given it to us, we do not need it. Be with our sick, Lord. Be with our mourning. God, I pray that you'd bless these people. That as we leave here tonight, that you would give us safe passage back to our homes. That you'd give us great fellowship with one another. Lord, I pray that you'd bring us together again soon. That we might be able to worship you again as a corporate body. God, I pray that you'd do this according to your timing. Whether in this place or home with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.